Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather round to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. Today's a special episode for us here at Womble. We are here in our beautiful new offices in Houston, Texas. Uh, this is our first office in Texas, and we're excited about being here. And I have with me uh, the man who's helping to lead this office into the future, our Houston office managing partner, Jeff Whittle. Jeff, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us, Mark. This is exciting. Great. Uh, but the real star of our show is Ryan Gum. Ryan's an intellectual property counsel at Andarco Petroleum Corporation based just outside of Houston. If Andarco sounds familiar, it's because it's one of the world's largest independent oil and natural gas exploration and production companies. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Mark. Yeah. Uh, before we dive into our topic, which is going to be focused on intellectual property issues, Ryan, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you ended up in Andarco? Sure. So uh, my background, I have a undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering, so a technical background. I uh, went to law school and then shortly after law school relocated to Houston where I had the benefit of practicing with, with Jeff here, uh, <laughs> who was nice enough to have me uh, with him. And after Jeff and I practiced together, I moved to National Oil of Arco. So it was my first in-house gig. So oil and gas equipment manufacturing company for the most part, uh, often lumped in with the service company. So there's some service pieces to it, but mm. kind of by and large, it's really equipment, drilling equipment drill bits, drilling rigs, etc. And then just about a year and a half ago, I relocated to Anadarko. So now I'm on the operator side. So got to see two different sides of, of the coin now on the oil and gas. That's great. Um, what Tell us a little bit about the legal department in Anadarko. How many other lawyers are there with you? Is it a big group? I think it probably depends on what you're comparing it to as far as size. <laughs> right. So, you know, we are the largest independent, but we're still an independent. So um, legal practice group, as far as attorneys, I think last check we're in the 70s. Okay. Uh, that, so, that's big for me. For a lot of our listeners yes. that may be one or two in-house people, right. you know, so, a, a department of 70s. It's, it's a pretty, pretty decent practice group. Um, on the intellectual property side of things, I'm kind of the sole person on the intellectual property okay. side. So. In that sense, it's small for me, relatively, since I'm the only one that's yeah. handling that. Um, but it's a pretty big group. Um, I'm in the EMP Services group, so the EMP Services group is fairly large and touches on essentially exploration and production services. So uh, any kind of service contracts issues would come up with that, and then um, I kind of support that group, but also really the corporation as a whole, since IP generally tends to span beyond just the service industry piece of it. Gotcha. Well, I wanted to have both of you join me today because I think intellectual property is an issue that a lot of counsel worry about, but a lot of them don't have that much experience in. A lot of our listeners may be in that smaller legal department, may be in charge of IP, but they're also in charge of transactional work and contracts and securities and employment and environmental and every everything else that comes under that umbrella. And obviously, you know, they'll get help uh, from the outside folks, but I think intellectual property is such a current issue as we move into a digital data-driven information economy, thinking about what intellectual property is and how to protect it is important. Is that something you, you guys have seen in the energy sector where IP is increasingly an important part of the business? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and particularly probably within the last 10 years or so. So now I think it's pretty difficult to listen to any company that plays in the oil and gas industry and not hear the words digital, not likely hear the words big data, internet of things. So there's certainly a push and a drive towards technology and adoption of innovative technologies. And naturally that obviously parlays into intellectual property. I think probably more folks when they talk are trying to get to the technology adoption piece of things as opposed mm -hmm. to necessarily right. focused on the IP side and protection. Um, but there's definitely been a, a, a sea change, I would say. And I think that's mostly driven by the market itself, right? So when oil's where it at, it, it's at and it's been, you know, in the 50s or below, you kind of have to come up with new technologies to try to increase those efficiencies so you can lower the break even. So it's really just kind of a nature of the beast that this has to happen. So it's not that that technology you know hasn't been readily available to the industry i, I think there's just been 
maybe not the drive, you know, when, when things are great and oil right. is at $100 <laughs> a barrel. $100 a barrel. <laughs> there may you, not be that incentive, right? That's right. You uh, don't have to be the most efficient. You just need to get out as much exactly. oil as you can. And so, you're making a lot on every, yeah. in every so, barrel. Certainly in the last, uh, you know, 10 years as a whole, but certainly 2014 on, you know, where we've been sitting in this kind of climate with oil and now, you know, hopefully steady around $50 a barrel. I think everybody is now focused on okay, how, how can we extract it more efficiently? How can we make our equipment more efficient? How do we essentially, you know, lower that break even so that it's still economically feasible for the companies to stay in existence, which naturally that has the technological piece to it, which, which has the IP component. I would agree with Ryan. I think technology in the last 10 years has just exploded in the energy area. And I think a lot of play in the technology side is a lot of companies trying to figure out where to take out the slack in the system where there may be some older techniques or things that are used and for them to go in and use innovation and technology to change that and take out the slack and therefore increase efficiencies and lower the cost of production and and service or or even transportation as the case may be um, to bring that technology to bear and then how do they protect it and how do they move forward with transferring or sharing that technology or using it as a service component things along those lines got you um, and i'm sure companies are using both but i'm wondering what kind of what the mix is between buying either an off-the-shelf solution or hiring an IT consultant to come in and say, oh, well, we can make your process more efficient, and here's the idea, versus a homegrown in-house development of solutions or development of software. Sure. Yeah, on my side, I've seen a mixture of both. You know, it probably depends on the particular problem that's trying to be solved or tackled Mm -hmm. from an efficiency standpoint. Uh, So certainly, you know, there's a move now, and I don't think that this is limited to the energy industry at all. This is across industry, right, is the move to the cloud. So um, that's obviously places where efficiencies can be created by just moving things that used to be, you know, on-prem to the cloud, which then increases accessibility and and increases some efficiencies. In those situations, a lot of times you're looking off the shelf or you're going out to a provider, you know, and working from a consultancy perspective to kind of revise your organization and how it functions and operates. But then when it gets down to the specifics as to solving maybe more particular energy industry problems, or in the case of, you know, Anadarko, an operator issue that we address, that's where I think you're gonna get some more organic growth within the company. Now you may be partnering with technology providers, but that's where I think the IP mm. component comes in, you know, more <clears throat> so there. Is gotcha. Then you're trying to find a unique solution to you to kind of, you know, increase those efficiencies, lower the break even, and that's ultimately a commercial advantage to us, right? So we want to maintain that commercial advantage to right. us, which means we need to find a way to try to protect it as best we can. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of companies that enter with a, some type of collaboration or some type of joint venture or something like that with other companies to pull in that technology or to take advantage of that technology, work together to kind of come up with solutions. Like a lot of companies don't necessarily have those capabilities in-house, so they collaborate or share or form a joint venture with somebody to share and, and kind of move forward in that direction for that innovation development and then take advantage of the economies they're from, you know, to try to pull that data out or that new technology, Absolutely. as the case may be, for their, both of their advantages. Yeah, I think there, there's certainly areas that will benefit the industry as a whole. Right. And so in those situations, you're not necessarily all that concerned about kind of protecting your individual right. you know, interests here. Mm-hmm. It's more, we're all going to advance and that will help us all in the long run. So right. definitely a lot of consortia right. uh, and kind of joint development projects or joint ventures being looked at. Yeah. And I would, I would say, especially where risk are issues, you know, you want to share the risk among the Absolutely. industry. Absolutely. And, and yeah. Safety initiatives, etc. Right. Yeah. You know, everybody kind of wins in advancing the ball in that right. area. Because so the whole industry wins from that image perspective. Although it sounds like, so you've got to make a decision, is this a industry benefit thing that we're not trying to protect, we're trying to share, or is this a proprietary, we've got the better process here that you need to protect? I mean, am I thinking about that right? Who makes that initial call, whether this is a good for everybody or, or a competitive advantage? Yeah, I think you're right. And some of that has to occur as far as those conversations. Usually, it's I think it's more you can kind of bend things into particular buckets. So if, if you're advancing, certainly safety, or if we're talking about environmental, yeah, right, right, things that are 
impacting the industry as a whole and also you know they can gather a lot of negative press whether it's one way or another if we advance the ball as to how we do things in an environmentally friendly manner how we do things in a safe manner everybody benefits from that so there's generally a lot of openness i think across the board certainly even within our company you know we try to be super transparent in those areas uh, not only to the benefit of you know consortia or partners in the industry as a whole but also to the public right and, and at the end of the day that the end users and consumers of what we're pulling out of the ground um, but there definitely are areas where then when we get out of that so i'd say there's overarching safety, environmental, when it gets down to the particular practices of us, right? Things that we're doing as far as how can we, you know, increase uh, efficiencies related to our spacing on our frack jobs, things of that nature. We start getting down to that level where it's more operational specific. Mm -hmm. That's where we're definitely going to want to make sure that we protect that as best we can and make sure that doesn't necessarily get disseminated across right. the board. And we've we've had instances for you know to put some you know a little bow on what Ryan said. We've had examples in the environmental area where clients have actually protected environmental developments with patents and other technologies, and they turn around and license it uh, for free, working with the EPA for free at some level, so that the whole industry can adopt it and learn because it helps the environment. We've had other issues situations where clients, like for example, in the midstream area where they have trouble with transportation or, or pipeline communications and, and accidents on pipeline where they actually manage it. So they, they in those mm. instances, have actually protected and then licensed it for value to the industry, but at a value that the industry, you know, finds really acceptable to them, both for Ryan's example, both an environmental situation and a safety example. Absolutely. So the pipeline, if it's a gas pipeline, doesn't explode or have an accident or something like that. If you can reduce that risk and manage those risks, everybody wins. Absolutely. Yeah. Let me ask a even more basic question. So we, we've talked about protect it. Sure. And I know, you know, people think protection, IP, oh, that's patent and maybe copyright or trademark or trade secrets. For those of the listeners that only put their toe in that and, you know, know those words, but don't do it. You know, what, what's the process when you develop something, you know, what is your process as, as IP counsel inside or outside in thinking about, okay, what type of protection do we need and how to kind of put that protection in place? Let's, let's do a basic review. Maybe sure. it's IP 101, <laughs> but we have some, we may have some folks that are just trying to, I know I need to protect this important process, but I don't know how to do it. Yeah, it, that's that's uh, that's fair. So let's kind of talk through that a little bit. It certainly differed for me from my stop at NOV, uh, which was an oil and gas equipment manufacturing company. So at the end of the day, you know, their bread and butter is making sure that they're advancing their technologies and that they're protecting those advancements because ultimately mm -hmm. that's what differentiates that's them, what right? Yeah, that's their what drill they bits, are. right? Their their drilling jars, etc. So that's a little bit different of a focus than now being kind of an operator perspective mm. only because i think on the calculus piece of things right so when we're nov and we're looking at something you know invention disclosure forms so everybody's got one in some way shape or form that's kind of the the bedrock of assessing whether or not you know you're going to protect something and if so how okay and so those come in from engineers from folks in the business who have ideas they submit these you look at them at nov at the end of the day you know we we sell our equipment Right, so that equipment's going to get out there to another party, and then once that party has it in their hands, they can reverse engineer it, they can take it apart, they can do right. things. And so, most often, when we look at things from that perspective and we'd weigh patent versus trade secret, often those two, if we know that that equipment's ultimately going to be available, people are going to be able to get their hands on it, kind of dissect it, look at it, reverse engineer it that tends to shift. Okay, well, maybe we do want to seek patent protection, and, and for those who don't know. Uh, the patent system is a great system, but by nature, you have to disclose your invention. And by that, regardless of whether you ultimately obtain the patent or not, that application is going to publish. Um, mm -hmm. It's out there in the world. <laughs> 18 months after you filed it. And that's just, it's going to happen. So what that does is in some cases it gives a competitor and, and usually probably not the competitors that operate above the board, but there are many competitors here, there and everywhere else that don't. And that will ultimately give them a blueprint as to how to replicate whatever it is you're trying to protect from a patent perspective. Mm. So if it's an equipment situation like an NOV, then usually we're probably going to trend towards you know more of uh, patent protection because ultimately folks are going to get their hands on it. They're going to be able to try to figure it out anyway. And so there's maybe not as much harm in going ahead and trying to get it more harm than good, right? Yeah. Um, 
trade secret side, you know, at NOV, and it's certainly more prevalent now at, at the operator's perspective, is when we find something that gives us a commercial advantage, we're an operator, right? So at the end of the day, we're trying to find, explore, and produce hydrocarbons. We're not really in the business of selling technology to other people, right? right. Sure. And so in that case, most often when we look at it, it's more of a, hey, if we file a patent application, it's ultimately going to be disclosed. It's going to be publicly available. You know, what's the practical ability of us to police and enforce that patent, even if it's granted against others? If we're talking about it being algorithms or software or whatever it is, it's more internal purposes. So I think more often than not, when we look at that, it, it tends to maybe lean more heavy towards trade secret protection as opposed to patent protection. But that's not to say that we, you know, we don't yeah. do a little bit of both in sure. some cases, but I think it probably depends on where you are, you know, are you upstream, midstream, downstream, what is your business ultimately, and that may lean one way or another, but regardless of where you are in that chain, there's going to be situations where trade secret protection is better or patent protection is better, and it's more of a cost-benefit analysis. Interesting. And I think also, to the trade secret point, I think it, to Ryan's point about the that it, is it publicly available? Does the public have access to it? If the public can see it and observe it at some level, even on the product level, even if you don't pursue patent protection for some reason, the public can learn from it. And if you're okay with the public learn from it, if you don't have patent protection, they can, you know, duplicate it basically at some level or, or take a lot of the elements from it and, and do it themselves. Versus if it's not in the public realm, so to say, as Ron mentioned, like algorithms and things, you know, uh, secret sauces, those type of things, mm -hmm. right. especially on the chemical right, side, the right? Yeah. Specialty additives to the uh, to the uh, flow of production of, of oil, you know, especially additive products or things like that. You may choose to keep a trade secret because it's very difficult to reverse engineer, and you want to maintain the secret nature of that. Interesting. So obviously, if you're patenting something, <laughs> there's an established process. You complete a patent application and submit that and wait for approval. If you decide to protect something as a trade secret, tell our listeners, well, what does that mean? Okay, yeah, let's protect that additive as a trade secret. What, what does that mean? What do you do? Yes, I think that largely depends um, organizationally. The different tax from different companies as to what their approaches are for trade secret protection from very informal to very formal. Mm. I think now, you know, with the passage of the DTSA not that long ago, which is the Defend Trade Secret Acts, which which gives you the ability now to go into federal court and bring a cause of action or before your recourse is really on a, a state level only, there's more emphasis on making sure that if you want to pursue that avenue, you better be comfortable with presenting the evidence to the judge or the jury that this is a trade secret, right? And ultimately for it to be a trade secret, it has to be one, give you a commercial advantage, which is generally pretty easy to prove that piece of it. But the second piece is that you've essentially taken reasonable measures to protect it as a trade secret. And if you haven't done that, good luck, you know. So right. <laughs> in other words, if, if, uh -huh. if you have something that's available to your you know, 30,000 employee company, you know, on a portal, mm -hmm. uh, good luck trying to say that that's a trade secret. I mean, if it's a trade secret and it's of true value, you know, you want to try to make it buckle down as best you can. So we've tried to take a more formalistic approach to it. So we've really kind of tried to document it in the same way that we would any kind of invention disclosure. Okay. So that's kind of, you know, the bedrock again is the intake piece of it. You look at it, then you make that dis assessment discussion about what's the optimum route here. Are we going to go patent or trade secret like we talked about? If you go trade secret, you already have it somewhat documented, right? So you have some uh, memorialization of what it is. And so then you know, you've got that, but then you have to couple it with, okay, are you actually protecting it? And have you been? Because often, <laughs> you know, sadly, it's maybe too late, right? There may have already been, you know, disclosures to people outside the company or otherwise. Or trade shows. And, right, trade shows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we yeah. demoed it at the All trade show. All kinds of things that are gonna <laughs> just have already destroyed any ability to try right. to treat that as a trade secret. Right. Uh, but if you do want to treat it as a trade secret, it, it's very important to try to have policies and procedures in place. Different companies tackle it different ways, but if it's kind of a secret sauce situation like Jeff was alluding to, does any one particular person need to have all of the elements of that secret sauce, mm -hmm. right? Can we break this up so that one person has, you know, parts one through five, the next person has parts six through ten. Mm -hmm. No one ever, and if there is someone, it's, you know, very high up in the mm -hmm. food chain. But 
all kinds of different things you can do, and particularly now with you know data security, mm-hmm. cyber security. It's not just physical security like it used to be. You know, now we've also got that added component of kind of digitalization, the technology. How are you protecting that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. You, you just want to be comfortable that if push comes to shove and you're going out and you're litigating a trade secret case that you're going to be able to feel very confident about demonstrating kind of the Fort Knox aspect of this thing is mm-hmm. so valuable. Here's how we've treated it, right? So mm-hmm. maybe even if it wasn't that valuable, <laughs> right? If you, can you need to be able to tell that story. Absolutely. And I'll add to what Ryan said. He, he mentioned an important part about documenting it. I think in court, when you go to court, one of the biggest problems that both plaintiffs and defendants have is the respect of identifying the trade secret. Actually, what is the secret? It's common for somebody to come into court and say, oh, we kept it confidential. And then everybody said, okay, so what is it now exactly? And and they said, it's over in that room somewhere. It's on the manufacturing floor. It's this amorphous thing that's out there. And time and time again, judges do not accept that as a good uh, evidence of being a trade secret. They want it documented, they want it identified, and then the steps that you took to Absolutely. take reasonable measures to keep it uh, secret and confidential. And there's, there's that natural tension too, right, in litigation where mm-hmm. you know the, the, the trade secret owner is saying, well, I can't disclose it to you in here in court because <laughs> it's my trade secret. Right, right, right. And we don't know how much of it you had access to. Right. We just, we know that you had some exactly. access to it. Exactly. And of course, some the other side of it, it's, well, how can we defend ourselves if we don't know what you're saying you took? Right, right, right. It's a natural tension. Yeah, and there's there's obviously, you know, uh, you can seal the record and things like that for those purposes in court, you know, for those discussions and those exchanges, and you can keep that confidential at that level. But there's that natural tension. Once you tell them what they took, then they go, oh, we didn't take that. You know, and there's, there's that pushback. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, no, that wasn't it. <laughs> that wasn't it. That was it. <laughs> yeah, interesting. But thanks for disclosing that. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah we'll use yeah. that, though. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, do you recommend, should companies have a trade secret policy, or is this part of a bigger policy? What, what do you suggest? And again, I'm not, at least in my, the clients I'm working with, I'm not sure they all have something that you could say, oh, well, here's our, trade secret policy. And I think part of that is they may not think of themselves as a technology company or a trade secret company, although as we move into this data age, they may may, they may be and not really realize it. What I, what, what, what do you I think, think you have to have standpoint? some policy? You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be too prescriptive, mm-hmm. uh, but probably more than the policy, and it goes hand in hand with the policy, is the education component, right? And so Mm -hmm. a lot of times you use the policy to ultimately educate the workforce, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how you get that um, disbursement of the knowledge out there within the company about kind of, okay, because people probably, you know, often have what could be protected as trade secrets, but just don't know that. I mean, they they don't appreciate, and even in you know, patentable invention spaces, they don't realize that what they've come up with is likely a patentable and protectable invention. So they often dismiss things in their own mind about, well, this probably isn't protectable, so I'm not you know, going to waste the time. So education, 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 and part of that is the policy. I think you do have to be a little bit careful with the policy because you don't want to set a super strict policy whereby then if you have something that you'd like to be able to take and say this is trade secret and this has been theft and if you didn't follow that policy to the t that that kind of cuts your legs out from mm-hmm. under you somewhat so mm-hmm. i think you got to be careful about kind of the prescriptive nature of what that policy says but ultimately i think you do have to have some at least baseline policy that just at least discusses trade secret and trade secret protection if nothing else just sets forth kind of the high level overview of what we've just been talking about about you have to treat it and then you know you really can't be too prescriptive anyway because the different business units, at least what I've seen within the company, are all going to have different technologies, different practices on record retention, etc. So, you know, somebody might go physical security side and have a you know key and lock in a file cabinet somewhere, whereas the other business is super adept at technology, so they're going to have a very you know lockdown, firewalled you know storage. So, we try to keep it a little bit loose, so there's that flexibility, but definitely have some basic policy. And I would, I would even add to that, um, I have the basic policy, but also have basic security measures for access to facilities and things like that where they can actually observe trade secrets in some instances. Because there's many uh, companies and many examples where people can just walk in 
and learn and kind of absorb things from a trade secret perspective. Mm. And how can you go to court and say this is a trade <laughs> secret when you have evidence of people just walking in, either not signing right. in. They saw not, it on the plant tour. They saw it on the plant tour. <laughs> they saw the yeah. layout. You know, that machine was confidential. How is that? <laughs> yeah. I've got pictures, you know. You yeah. let me take pictures, you know, those and type I of think things. That's a hundred percent correct. Yeah. And I think part of the problem with the move kind of to the digital age, right, is that I, now all the focus and the emphasis, whether it's from the board level or down, is, is on tackling and plugging those gaps, right? Cybersecurity, right, right. data security. Well, right. <laughs> you can have all those things. And if you don't have physical security, yeah. you know, all that's a moot point. Right. I mean, someone walks right. through the front door, goes to your desk, takes everything off your desk. Right. Great. We had the best data and right. cybersecurity there is. Right. So, it, you know, people need to keep in mind this is kind of the full Monty here, if you will. Yeah. You know, you've gotcha. got to have everything across the board. This is a, a totally just a nerdy curiosity question. Uh, you mentioned earlier patentable um, inventions. Have you experienced, uh, either of you experienced, where you know folks who are down on the line or what have you, really in the trenches doing the work, doing the labor, and they've, you know, like you, necessity is the mother of invention, right? And so they're like, okay, yeah, we got this thing, and so we did this thing, and now it's the and yeah, we everybody's used it like we do it, and and no one has been like sent that up the line to be like, we just made a more efficient thing for us, and we should probably like patent this. Is that all the time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think yeah, particularly, you know, interview for example, you're working with different groups that have, I mean, their focus is R and D, right, and that's what they do, and so they're generally engineers or otherwise, and so. You don't worry about that happening with those folks because that's ultimately their focus and jobs that they understand that as they start to develop things. But it, it's often the field techs or the mm -hmm. service techs who, mm -hmm. like you said, out of necessity have come up with some great solution that they don't even think about it. And mm -hmm. so that's, again, it's that education component and how do you push that to everybody? You know, not just the folks your office with, not the people mm -hmm. in corporate, but actually out to the service tech level to understand that, hey, that very well may be the, the next greatest thing that you just came up with. Let's make sure that we look at it and see if we can protect it before it goes, you know, out the window. So it's a challenge. Right. And to, to Ryan's point, I think a lot of these people that come up with these innovations on the tech side are really like, they may not be book engineers, but they've worked so long and understand technology so well that they're the practical engineers many times that are able to grasp how things really work and how things really operate. And no, you, you think that's in theory, but that theory doesn't really work in our situation. Here's our problem, here's our issue, and this is how we went about to try to solve it. And so they actually identify it and are actually really sometimes the heart and soul invention yeah. out, of, out of necessity because they're really in the field and on the ground, boots on the ground type person um, at the manufacturing plant or out in the field location as the case may be, solving those problems and, and being inventors in so that sense. From a business standpoint, what in your experience, what has been, have you kind of found one or two things that you recommend as reward, I guess, or whatever, like something to essentially make folks really kind of aware of, hey, the, the, what you do is of value and, and we want to be able to capture that. Yeah, so most, most companies have some level of an incentive. You know, you can call it an award or reward, whatever you want, right? But there's, there's usually some mechanism whereby uh, employees are going to get rewarded for certain things, whether that's submitting an IDF or an application is filed or a patent is granted or, or could be all three, right? So usually there is some level of incentive uh, to try to make sure that you're rewarding innovation and you're also making it, you know, people like... It, it obviously advances the company's interest, which advances that individual's interest relative to the company, but this is also something on top of that, right? Which is, a, we acknowledge what you've done, this is, this is great, you know? And so here's, here's a little money, here's whatever it is. But it's still a challenge to this field and service folks, because uh, you know, most often than not, corporate and the folks that are working in office building know about that policy, and, and they're obviously you know, gonna take advantage of that. But trying to get that out to the people that are in remote locations, whether it's you know, offshore, uh, on a rig, and those folks may or may not have email addresses. That, you know, I mean, so it's it, trying to get that out into the mm -hmm. far-reaching tentacles of the company is often the challenge. In the I think that's absolutely fascinating. That, that the, and, and I know that my, my father's been in manufacturing his whole life and is one of those folks who is, you know, has a, not an engineering degree, 
but is someone who is very engineer minded and that idea that you know that you are like you're saying oh yeah the company has spent tons of money to kind of develop this thing and it's almost perfect except it doesn't do this part and so they you know they're on the fly are able to like weld and mm-hmm. whatever and make it better and but then that's it like it's like the, you know it's like yeah we got our job done right like, but it doesn't go up the line it's like well no that's that's incredibly valuable mm-hmm. and i think that's the you know maybe trying to segue a little bit to another topic is the education component is so key and i think that even beyond kind of the service folks or the folks who might come up with that within the legal department as we kind of you know turn the page now to, to big data and data privacy and cybersecurity, that educational component just within a legal group itself now is so important because specializations are always going to be there right so i'm going to be the ip guy but you can't any longer just be kind of the the service contracts person and not have an understanding and a knowledge of these issues in these areas you can't just say hey here's the ip guy you go handle it because that's the new normal right is now you you have to have an appreciation of that technology for if nothing else just having that trust and credibility with your clients within the business if they come talking to you about something and your eyes glaze over you know, which mine often do, <laughs> but I try to disguise that. Um, <laughs> but you, you have to have some basic level now of understanding right. of things right. that probably 10 years ago, maybe even right. five years ago, just weren't even on the radar. Right. It's constant education on every level, you know, within a company of making sure that everyone's abreast of what's going on within the company, that everybody's up to speed on the technology, mm-hmm. which I think is a challenge for legal departments, quite honestly, because you know, I'm certainly set in my ways. I still like to take paper and print it out and redline and ink, right? And even just the simple, okay, we're redlining in Word now. It's not the most efficient for me because I still want to hold on to the paper and do that. And that's a very basic example, right? Now we're talking about moving everything to the cloud. We're talking about data security, cybersecurity, and those things, even if you're not necessarily an expert in them, you at least have to be able to issue spot now, those Mm -hmm. things, so that when you're reviewing something, you flag it and then you go, you know, you can still have your specialization and kind of resident expert, but you got to at least know what you're looking at to be able to flag it. And I think that's a challenge for folks. I, I find that that ripples through agreements as well, right? When you're either transferring technology, sharing technology, taking in technology, and just taking procedures either on the service side or some other type of agreement, that kind of filters into the agreements and representations. And Absolutely, like yeah, because often you know, <clears throat> you're, you're, the sophistication of the clients that you're working with in in-house practice can can differ greatly, right? So there might be folks that are super business savvy, or you might be dealing with folks that are super tech savvy, uh, you know, but there's not always that marriage of both necessarily. Right. And so if, if they're looking to you kind of solely as a reliance on the legal side, but also more as the business because they're right. technical, and you can't spot those issues, they're not spotting those right, issues, right. right? So it's it's just a gap that's a challenge to try to fill and close. And so, you know, sometimes I think as attorneys, we can kind of go, you know, kicking and screaming into the, <laughs> the yes. new age, right? So <laughs> right. I, I don't consider myself an early adopter of, right. of many things, but I think out of necessity now, we all kind of have to get up to snuff on certain things. Certainly data security right Right. is now such a big thing and will be a big thing will continue to be a big thing and i think that's a relatively new problem not probably for european practitioners who have been dealing with this for at least a decade if not more Um, but for u.s practitioners who haven't maybe been dealing in a state that's been very like a california to be proactive this is this is going to be a new i think is a as a country uh, practice and focus for people right i think it's new for the energy sector because they tend to be slower adopters sometimes of technology in terms of moving forward so so a lot of the agreements and things that you review you know, it's a real caution for us to make sure that when we go through with clients to make sure that their agreements have the right representations and right right protections in place so that both parties actually win in the end, yeah, absolutely. you know, from that perspective. Going back to what you were talking about, Mark, on the, on the front end is I think everyone's talking about right. the digital age and we're transforming right. and, right. you know, how many people <laughs> you will hear say in the oil and gas space, well, we actually consider ourselves a technology company now. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> You know, I right. kind of laugh we'll probably in five that, years. Right? We're, we're an AI company. Yeah. <laughs> we, we're using AI. So, I mean, I think it's, it's true. Yeah. You know, everybody's kind of turning the page and shifting that direction. 
but I, I don't think folks necessarily <laughs> always appreciate what that entails what right? across right. the board, yeah. right? So everyone's exactly. got that drive, and yeah, right. let's let's do that. But you know, yeah. from legal to everybody else within mm-hmm. the company, making that big, you know, it's a big turn. And right. so, if you're a technology company, but you have no way to deal with trade secrets, right? right? There's right. A, there's a potential disjoint <laughs> right. there for yeah. well, we're technology, but right. no, we don't do right. anything to protect. So that's interesting. And your agreements and, and procedures don't reflect it for some reason, right? Right. Yeah. right. yeah. Especially, I mean, that's the the industry, really. Yeah. I mean, as right. a whole, mm-hmm. right? Is and I think it, it's probably been a misnomer that people, I think. Before I was in the energy industry and really saw the technology, I always, in my mind, thought, well, this is, this is dumb iron. You know what I mean? It's, this is poke a straw on the ground, oil comes out, you know. And, and then you get in there and you realize, wow, this is some really advanced technology, even just in the mechanical space. Mm-hmm. But now when you're, okay, now we're going to turn the ship even further. So, you know, given the complexities of what you're doing, the depths you're doing, the temperatures, the pressures, it's amazing that the technology that's been innovated to it's- date. It's it's tremendous. I mean, I'll really just is. again to put a bow on what he's saying a little bit. Again, that if you think about, and I've heard this kind of analogy used often. If you think about when I go to the pump for gas, and I pay somewhere between two to four dollars for gasoline, a gallon of gasoline to get that from the ground all the way to my car, and I pay two to four dollars. But I'll go buy a cup of coffee, you know, with a, a latte or something, and I'll pay four or five dollars for that, and the comparison in terms of, and I'm not saying that coffee's not great, <laughs> but imagine all the technology that goes from, to, to oh, Ryan's yeah. point, for not really poking a hole in the ground, but getting all that stuff out of the ground all the way to my car for less than that cup of coffee that I pay for. That's pretty tremendous. It is. It is. And, and, it, and we lose sight of that sometimes because we take it for granted how easy it kind of comes about. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I have one more question. We talked about education. Is that part of your role as IP counsel to try to educate people in the company about be aware of trade secrets, fill out your you know, innovation forms, is, or does someone else do that? Or how, how, does, that, how does that play in? Yeah, I think it's, it's uh, all of the above, really, kind of practice. I mean, obviously, I, I try to be a champion of the areas in which I practice and do that visibly as best as I can. But you know, no one person in any organization can make that happen. So it really is kind of an all-hands-on-deck approach to where you have to have buy-in from the top level down, which thankfully, you know, Anadarko is a company from the board down that's very interested and very serious about getting, you know, things moving towards the digital age and technology. And so you really have to have the buy-in, you know, just even within our legal department. Compliance folks are involved, right, because we're looking at, okay, how can we train our people? How can we make that an annual requirement or otherwise to get people up to speed? You've got certainly the businesses that are trying to train their people just so that they're capturing and understanding how things work. Also understanding when they're doing deals or agreements with people, what things they should be sharing, what things they shouldn't be sharing, when to raise it to legal, when not to raise it to legal. Uh, so it really is, I think, everybody's part to try to get it there. If it's, if it's left to one person in the legal department, it's just not going to happen, you know, practically. And I think Ryan is also a good example. He also not only educates internal, but he educates external. He speaks and, and talks to panels to different uh, bar associations and professional societies and things like that in terms of that education as well and trying to make sure attorneys and executives are educated in that regard as well. We do too, of course, but uh, just to compliment Ryan, I've heard him many times <laughs> and it's, it's, in that to be regard. Fair, it's, a, it's a two-way street, yes. right? I mean, I'm trying to educate my company, our workforce, at the same time right. I need to be educated. Right. Because a lot of these kind of emerging issues aren't things that I've had exposure to. Right. And so you've got to try to find those experts where they are out there and mesh up with them and learn as much as you can from them. Gotcha. I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about branding. We've been talking about trade secret stuff. Branding is obviously something you want the world to know. Um, tell me about, you know, what are some of the difficult in-house branding issues that energy companies face or that you've dealt with and maybe some things for our folks that may be struggling on in-house branding to think about? Yeah, so probably two very different practices between at mm-hmm. NOV and, and versus now at Anadarko as an operator. Yeah. At Anadarko, it's it's the house mark, right? It is Anadarko. That's our mark. We don't have other marks. That's, that's okay. really you know who we are and what we do, and that's across the board. We don't have particular products. 
or services that we're selling you know, to consumers at the end of the day, we're an operator. So it's a, it's an easier practice in one sense because yeah. I don't have a suite or a portfolio of marks. I have a mark in multiple countries that's protected, um, but that's kind of you know the bread and butter there. And it, in that sense, it's usually trying to protect it from more of a, a dilution perspective or tarnishment, which is where there are folks out there that are trying to sling mud at your brand. And so they may go out and get some awful domain names and mm-hmm. some things of that nature. And so trying to figure out what you can or can't do uh, using your trademark rights there is probably what we look at in that sense. Or uh, squatters, you know, domain name squatters, people that are using typo domains for phishing or otherwise. The other side of that coin, NOV, which is much more, hey, we do sell products, right? And that's, that's yeah. what we do. I'd say one of the challenges, which this is going to be a comment more towards probably the folks that you work with in-house, um, not necessarily what you do on an enforcement perspective is, again, education about what is and is not protectable from a trademark perspective. And I think if you look at the energy industry as a whole uh, and you look at some of the selection of brands, you will often see ones that are what we would consider as a trademark practitioner, merely descriptive, <laughs> uh, which generally is going to entitle you to either no protection or a very low level of protection, mm-hmm. uh, or in some cases, generic. So mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times it would be, hey, we have this vertical drilling tool, right? And we would like to trademark vertical drilling tool. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's, it's the educational component. Right. Well, you can't mm-hmm. protect that as a trademark. That's, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, and so there, there's a lot of that. But it's I think. such a great description. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it just yeah. seems like, you know. And it, it's certainly a different ball game, right, for a shell yeah. or someone else who ultimately does have, you know, gas stations Consumer and consumers, faces. right, right. that are, right. are going to be doing that. But for the most part, even in NOV um, and Anadarko, the level of sophistication with the customers who we're dealing with, you know, these aren't ultimately the consumers, the end user, and also the transactions, right? So we're talking about generally high dollar expenditures transactions so usually folks aren't confused about who they're doing business with just given you know the fact mm-hmm. of how much money is invested in those deals mm-hmm. but probably for me in my practice in-house it hasn't been as important but ultimately i think if you're a global company which you know nov is uh, anadarko obviously has operations outside of the u.s there's where the real rub is on branding, right? Because uh, there are bad actors everywhere in the world and they're ultimately trying to infringe your trademark, create counterfeits, uh, which is bad for you, you know, from a safety perspective, right? For harming our brand because some drilling tool that's not our drilling tool, that's been branded as our drilling tool gets purchased by somebody and there's some awful accident, but also just, you know, increasing or digging in on their market share. So people are coming in and just, straight up counterfeiting and ripping off your brand. And that's it's a constant challenge. And you, you kind of know the folks uh, geographically that you're talking about that you're going to have these issues with. And that's, that's certainly an ongoing branding exercise there. Not so much from the operator perspective, but if you're selling products to people, you can bet that's going to be an issue. And there's different tactics you take depending on who the, who the potential infringer is, their size, you know, their location, geographical location, and how you enforce that in court or take other measures to try to stop the counterfeiting or the dilution or the, or the knockoffs, as the case may be, at different levels. We have experience doing that with a lot of different companies, energy companies in particular, globally, and, and I think we do a good job on that. But, but the issues are tricky, right? They move. Super tricky. You know, the, yeah. the infringers move around. They try to hide themselves. And and move locations yeah. and it's it's a challenge too just uh, from the the economics of it because, right you know in the patent world <clears throat> you know for better or worse you can essentially pick and choose who you want to enforce against right so i mean th- there's more discretion from a patent right. owner's perspective without really a damaging uh, you know kind of a stopple effect of saying well i'm going to go after this company mm-hmm. because they are actually large and it's <laughs> really making an impact versus right. Tiny little person may create one infringing product a year. It's not worth right. the time, the effort to go after it. Trademark world's different, right? Because ultimately, it's supposed to be a consumer protection device. It's supposed to protect consumers. So you don't really have that luxury. And so when you look at things, it may be a case where you want to say the same thing, like this is not worth really the time or the effort. Right. But you have to do something, or else you're going to erode your rights in that particular area or that. You know, so. It's a tough spot to be in, I think, from a brand owner because you don't have that kind of discretion as much. Now, you might handle it differently, like Jeff right. said, but you still usually, it's not inaction. It's just what's the action you're yeah. going to take. 
And it's developing a strategy. And I, I think also like in the United States, the registrations preferred in the United States, a lot of companies don't register their marks. And it's not actually required to enforce marks. Whereas in some countries, and, and I would dare say even most countries, I think you agree, Ryan, that registration is important for enforcement and you can't enforce it unless you have it registered. And so the downside is a lot of companies outside the U.S., a lot of these counterfeiters or people that want to slightly trade off your name or fully trade off your name will seek to register before you either a mark that, that you're mm. currently using that you have not registered there or one that they anticipate you registering there because they've seen you use it somewhere else or, or something close to your mark. You know, because you haven't registered your house mark, they and I think everybody's seen those headlines, yes. right? Because that's that's the case that ends up on the front of the Wall Street Journal, right. which is right. Apple <laughs> pays how much to Chinese, you know, <laughs> registrant of right. the mark? Right. Yeah, right. It's just right. it's kind of mind-boggling, but it is mm-hmm. it's the it's the world we live in in, in wow. some countries. But there's some there's some effective tools and strategies that you can really. Um, if you plan well, there's some effective ways that you can, you know, minimize that risk or reduce that risk, at least for some companies, especially outside the United States, and sort of taking proactive steps to kind of protect and wait for these, uh, you might call them cyber squatters or, or <laughs> false registrants to uh, erode their opportunities so you can strengthen your position and your mark and registration in those countries. Brian, I assume, is enforcement something you'd look to outside counsel to help with in terms of that, or do you do some of that? Internally, how do you? It's it's a bit of both. I think it depends on what you're doing. So, kind of as Jeff alluded to, what what action are you going to take? Okay. And, and depending upon what that action is, will necessitate whether or not you're going to bring in outside counsel or not. I mean, gotcha. Generally, when you get to a particular level, there's always going to be outside counsel mm-hmm. involved. But some of the kind of early on actions you might take, whether it's a cease and desist or otherwise, or something that you can often produce in house and send out, and you may get the response you want, but. Other times you may just want the weight of, you know, an outside firm name and letterhead to, to go to, to whoever <laughs> yeah. you are to, to demonstrate the seriousness of what you're doing. So I think it, it depends on who the potential infringer is, what's the situation, you know, but it's, it's a bit of a mix. But usually there's always going to be some involvement from outside counsel. And as IP counsel, do you do like patent filings and trademark filings or do you use outside counsel? For those things, I know, I know different people draw the line in terms of what is in-house work versus outside work. I'm just curious for other IP counsel that may be listening in. Kind of, how do you decide what you're going to do yourself versus get someone else? Sure. To so help? It, it might two stops along the way in Ovi and Anadarko. Mm-hmm. We've managed outside counsel, so we've had okay. in both places. In Ovi, we had a group of essentially three IP attorneys, one for each business segment. In Anadarko, I'm the sole IP attorney. So from just a volume perspective, there's not the ability to handle that in-house. Uh, so it was much more management of outside counsel. Uh, now, certainly kind of the front-end groundwork, so admission disclosure forms like we talked about and generally review of those, often that's going to be done in-house. But once you've got to the point of, hey, we want to take action, we want to prep and file an application, that's usually when I mess up with someone like Jeff and say, hey, we got this this uh, idea, take a look at it, let's let's get the ball rolling. And then the management of that through the prosecution process and then ultimately even in maintenance and annuity payment stages generally been outside now obviously others in the space in the industry practice differently and it, it takes a small army depending upon what your approach is there right. and so i think you've seen a trend you know particularly i think with the kind of contraction within the industry you know obviously headcount's always something that's looked at anytime things get down and so you know legal departments <laughs> right. are not immune to <laughs> not those immune, cuts right. whatsoever particularly not since really, you're not a big yeah, revenue exactly. generator right we try yeah, to argue right. that from that yeah. here, right which is, well we are you <laughs> know but uh it, that doesn't always fly so i think i think i don't know if you call it a trend but i think folks are are certainly utilizing outside counsel more where they can where they can get efficiencies there uh, and really trying to focus folks in now, it depends on you know again what your business is and what your your focus is if you're an r&d organization in technology you want to make sure you're staffed internally to support that um, if you're an operator like us who's important you know we value technology but that's not necessarily kind of all we do you know or want to do you're going to try to find efficiencies with outside counsel and plug them in where you can and kind of stay focused on the task internally particularly with all these other issues we've talked about like cybersecurity, data privacy that has to be driven internally, you know, because it is a organization adoption. So a lot of time is spent on some of these more peripheral issues that 
I think folks tend to lump under a larger IP mm -hmm. umbrella, even though they may not be classically, you know, IP. So I think that takes more time now in-house to deal with those issues. As much as you can give to outside counsel that could be handled efficiently, you know, the better. Great. Um, has there been an uptick in IP transactional issues in the last few years? Things like licensing, merger acquisitions, spinoffs, things like that. Uh, or any, I guess in particular, I'm wondering if there are practical tips or, or flags that either of you want to raise for some of that transactional stuff of things that have gone awry or that, you know, that in-house counsel may want to be aware of. Yeah, I think, I think there have, and I, I don't know that it's an uptick necessarily in the IP issues. I think it's just a, an uptick in transactional, right? Okay. So mm -hmm. obviously with things contracting, there's, there's more consolidation. So there's folks looking at different, you know, divestitures, acquisitions, whatever, as the industry continues to, to consolidate and get a bit smaller. And I think that'll continue. I don't think that trend is in any way going to slow down or stop. Mm -hmm. I think as long as $50 oil is here to stay, <laughs> which it looks like it certainly is uh, for the time being, there's going to be further consolidation, which means further potential large transactions or otherwise. And those are usually rife with, with potential IP issues. Mm -hmm. uh, depends on the companies, obviously, you're looking at. But I, I mean, you can look at, obviously, within the past few years, the kind of not approved Halliburton Baker uh, proposed merger, which, you know, it can tell you and anybody can tell you in the industry that had the potential to have a lot of dominoes because of the IP pieces that were involved with that, that were going to have to be ultimately potentially sold off mm. to make the deal work. And so there were a ton of folks that weren't involved directly in that transaction on either side, you know, as an NOV who were looking and saying, okay, if this happens, do we have a chance to jump in and get something? And if so, what's that look like? And that requires a ton of due diligence on the IP side mm -hmm. to make sure that you're kind of ready if that happens. And then ultimately, you know, that didn't happen. Baker GE did happen, um, which was a you know further consolidation with two very robust IP portfolios on both sides right. of that. And that in and of itself changes your game, right? So you went from, you know, kind of who your competitors are in your space and what their IP portfolios look like to now, okay, we've got one one big owner of two portfolios combined. And maybe that changes the dynamic for me as a competitor about what I need to be worried about, whether it's infringement, freedom to operate, etc. So I think with both potential IP uh, or potential M&A transactions, tons of IP stuff that folks have to be aware of and, and keep their eye on just because it's an ever-changing landscape now in the sector and IP is a piece of it. And that's it's not even considering kind of what we've been talking about, which is the shift right. towards the digital age yeah. and technologies. Where there's, there's certainly companies, I think, that because of things they touch outside of the energy space, let's say like a GE, for example, mm -hmm. who's been, you know, whether it's their healthcare piece or otherwise, mm -hmm. they've been there, they've done that, right, on digital or otherwise, and so they may be more adept to kind of make that turn, especially when we start looking at these consolidations and mergers, so definitely a lot going on there. And I think, I think there's a lot of use of transactions to de-risk issues. So where they don't have a specialty or they don't want to spend that capital, they want to go to either proven technology or technology that somebody already has, and they want to share that capital risk. So they form a joint venture or do some type of license arrangement or something like that to de-risk it. And so I think because of that, where to Ryan's point, the oil prices are pretty steady and not super high, but at a good good level, I think companies tend to try to work together more or try to share technology or try to develop things further. Whereas if it falls down, if you see oil prices falling down to $30 a barrel, <laughs> it's going to be, there seems to be a lot yeah. more litigation, yeah, a lot more fighting and things along those lines. Mm -hmm. Whereas at this level and, and higher, they tend to try to get along because they're, you know, they're about trying to grow their business, right? produce you know better revenue for their shareholders and things like that so they're about that and they're kind of pursuing that more actively to try to increase yeah. their market share or go after new business opportunities yeah, I think, and I, things that's like that. That's a great point and something to keep an eye on is <clears throat> as folks try to make the turn and become technology companies that they're saying you know what's the more likely scenario that that happens organically within right. or that happens because they've went out and, and looked at an acquisition that can get them where right. they want to be and right. so be interesting to see how things unfold there. Absolutely. 
I know we're beginning to run out of time. I want to ask something I've asked some other guests, which are, you know, what keeps you up at night or what might maybe should be keeping uh, some other in-house counsel up at night in terms of IP issues. So, uh, and we may have talked about some of the biggies like uh, data security and cybersecurity, but, what, you know, what other things do you worry about or think, you know, are on your radar as, as problem issues? I'm glad you qualified that with IP issues because I'm just going to say my kids generally. <laughs> right. The, the kids are, yeah. <laughs> Seven and five-year-olds keep tend to keep night. me up the most <laughs> middle of the night. Right. Every time. D- d- you know, plan- planning the next T-ball <laughs> yeah, game and exactly. figuring out your lineup and who's going to, you know. Uh-huh. So outside of <laughs> who's that. Who's going to play first base? So in addition to the, stu- the stuff that we kind of already touched on here and there, uh, you know, data privacy, cybersecurity, getting up to speed on where things are heading from a technology practice. To me, it's the things that I don't know, right? Mm. So it's it's that totally unknown <laughs> disruptor, if you will, that's potentially lurking. That's not any particular subject matter that I know right now is, you know, at least these things are identifiable and on the horizon, but it's that something that just phone call in the middle of the night, you know, from the GC that, hey, XYZ has happened. It's, that tends to keep me up. I don't, just to be clear, I don't think that's ever going to happen, but that, <laughs> but that tends to keep me up is, okay, what, what do I not know, you know, or what do I not have eyes on right now that we're trying to kind of plug holes and gaps or get up to speed on? And that's, I think, you know, fear from an in-house counsel perspective is if you've been on the in-house side of things, you know that it's, it's triage, right? It's just the volume is extreme. You have to be able to triage things and you have to be able to put the attention where it needs to be and then not put the attention where, you know, it, it doesn't need to be from a risk perspective. You know, and that's that's the name of the game for any attorney, right, is assessing risk. But you also have the unique that you're not just assessing risk, but you're making generally the decision on whether or not, you know, the risk is acceptable or not. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the business doing that. Mm-hmm. But when you're triaging, you, you are <laughs> you, naturally doing that, that right? Yeah, Absolutely. to some degree. So I think that's, that's kind of what keeps me up is that there's something out there lurking that just doesn't have visibility right now that might pop up that could just totally, you know, get things off the rails. But I sleep pretty well, other than, <laughs> other than the children. Yeah, That's good. Let me ask you, Jeff, I know you work with a lot of different clients sure. in the IP space. Are there things that should be keeping them up at night or things that you think that are on the horizon as we help clients, you know, look around the next corner that they should be thinking about. Yeah, I think, I think a couple of things is to make sure that their agreement work is kind of up to date, you know, that they've, they've really paid attention to the change in the laws and the change in procedures that have occurred both in the United States and globally, for example, in Europe and other locations like the privacy regulations in Europe and things like that, to make sure their agreements and their policies and procedures are up to date. Because we often see that they're not, and they need to address those early on. I think the other thing is a lot of companies miss the curve on innovation sometimes. I think they, um, to Ryan's point about disruption, there can be some disrupting technologies and disrupting advances. And so for companies to keep an eye on that and look for opportunities, either for, to Ryan's point, either for acquisition or licensing or things that, that technologies that are emerging that are really having an impact and it happens a lot in this space, whether it's through seismic technology or through other exploration tool equipment, those type of things. Make sure they're in a position to participate in the upside and try to um, minimize the risk on the downside. Terrific. Great. As we wrap up, any final tips or notes that you want to share with our audience? Anything else? Any baseball tips? It's you know, yeah. Oh, base, baseball ready. <laughs> that's, that's all I yell at, at my son. It's baseball ready. Get those hands down. It's spring, it's spring, it's, it's spring training. It's spring training out there now. Yeah. The, the, the new thing now is that, and it's probably an age thing, but you've, you've got to get them to stop flossing because that's not really a baseball ready position in the outfield. So... They can just stop that long enough to, to focus on the batter. That's a dance, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you see that blank look on my face. Now, otherwise, you know, that's it. I think, uh, you know, that my kind of final tip or takeaway would be that in-house practice comes with its own unique challenges, certainly, um, than private practice. But I think solving it usually requires outside counsel's involvement, um, you know, and vice versa, obviously, if, if you guys didn't have in-house counsel engaging you, <laughs> it, would, right. it would be, yeah, uh, difficult, get right, right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, obviously it's, it's triage, like I talked about, figure out things you can tackle, things you can handle inside, and then make sure you know what you don't know and, and get, get help where you need it. Yeah. 
Terrific. Well, thank you. I, I think thank we've you, covered Ryan. a lot of yeah. very practical ground for folks that, that may be trying to juggle in and triage, not only triage within IP, but triage the IP versus all their other roles. So I appreciate those those tips. And Ryan, thank you for joining us, Jeff. It's thank been you, great Mark. having you, you here as well. I want to remind our listeners, you can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse and subscribe to this podcast at our website, WombleBondDickinson.com. You can also do so on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, or your other favorite app. If you have questions or comments about this episode or tips for future subject matters, please share them with me on LinkedIn or Twitter or email, which you can find at our website. Thank you so much for listening. This is the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station.